they crucified him with two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, "Uh, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. And when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Imagine with me that you're traveling on a cruise across the Atlantic Ocean with three of your good friends. The cruise is amazing. There's great food and great drinks and great shows. It's an awesome experience. And about halfway through the cruise, after dinner, you suggest to your friends, hey, let's go up to the top deck of the boat. Let's get a view of this amazing body of water called the Atlantic. So your friends say, yeah, great idea. You go up and it's as picturesque as you can imagine. It's nothing but deep blue sea wherever you look. No land in sight. The sun is setting, it's bright orange, it's reflecting off the water, and you and your friends are captivated. You move closer and closer to the edge of the ship so you can get as good a view as possible. You come right up to the railing on the edge, and then at the same time, all four of you lean into the railing, when suddenly, it collapses. The railing tumbles over the side of the ship, and because you four were leaning into it, you tumble with it. You splash into the Atlantic, your body clenches because of the cold water, you scramble to the surface, you breathe in a gasp of air, and suddenly, when you come to your senses, you realize we're stranded. We're miles away from safety. This has become the crisis cruise line. And crises like these in our lives often force us to address some of the more difficult parts of our existence. Pain and suffering and death become eminent in crises. And as the ship continues off and as the sun continues to set, you and your friends are more and more aware that death is eminent. It's inevitable. It's something you're all going to have to go through. And regardless of what the results of this situation are, the responses of your friends are revealing in this moment. We always respond uniquely to crises. And so you look at your first friend. What's their response like to death in their midst? And this friend, curiously, has a taco and a margarita in their hand. Like, well, how'd this happen? How do you have, we're in the ocean, how does that? And they say, well, we left dinner and I still had a little bit left, so I just brought it with me. And when we fell, I was able to hang on to him. So, well, this ocean of death, like it's here, but I'm not really worried about it. I'm not really going to think about it. I'm just going to eat my taco and my margarita. And this friend has the strategy of avoidance. When it comes to pain and suffering and death, they just push it to the fringes. They don't address it. This is a a common uh, response that we have in our American culture to death. We love to push death to the fringes and avoid it. You can see the way we do this in the things we say to one another in pain and death. We say things like, every cloud has a silver lining. 
Okay, cool. But the cloud still exists, right? The cloud didn't go anywhere. I don't care how silver the lining is. Tacos and margaritas don't just get rid of death and pain. We like to say things like everything happens for a reason, which sounds really wise at first, but it's actually not saying anything at all. It's avoiding addressing pain and death and saying, well, it'll, it'll all be fine. Just don't, don't worry about it. Just avoid it. Push it off. It'll all wrap up in the end. Everything happens for a reason doesn't mean anything when you're treading water in the middle of the ocean. And we let this sort of mentality creep into our lives as Christians, too, if we're not careful. You guys know the, the slogan for the popular Christian radio station here in Phoenix, K-Love? Positive, encouraging K-Love. As if the umbrella under which all of our artistic expression as Christians needs to be positive and encouraging. And if it's not those things, then we need to get rid of it. We live a therapeutic sort of faith oftentimes. My wife Emily is a nurse at Mayo Clinic here in Phoenix. And she's told me about nurses that have worked in other places around the country. An article she's read about certain hospitals that push the most sick patients, the dying patients, to the fringes of the hospital in the darkened rooms so that people don't have to see them die. So that nobody has to actually see what's happening. They isolate them and push them far away. This is what our culture does with death and pain. We avoid it. But friends, avoidance will do nothing for us in an ocean of death. It is a useless response. So you turn to your second friend, right? Maybe they have a better response. And the second friend seems to have a more promising response at first because they had spent a lot of time with the captain and the crew when they were back on the ship. They were really interested in learning about the ocean and about the, the path you were taking, and they studied maps really, really well. And they blurt out, hey, guys, I know exactly where we are in the middle of the Atlantic, and I know exactly how far it is to the shore. It's only 1,421 miles. And you're like, oh, that's, that's actually kind of encouraging until you realize I can't swim 1,421 miles? I can't get back to shore with that number? This is the response of religious moralism or just moralism in general, secular moralism. Throughout human history, we've contrived ways to deal with pain and suffering by saying, well, be a good person. Be as good a person as you can, and that's how we'll resolve our issues. That's how we'll work this out. We just need saner heads to prevail. And all you got to do is pick up a history book to realize that that method has never worked and continues to fail to work. All you got to do is look at Buffalo this weekend where racism and violence are continuing to tear apart our country because, well, this is what we do as humans. Despite the best moral frameworks we can develop, we're never able to resolve pain and death and suffering. And in fact, oftentimes our moral maps just expose to us the gap between what we know we ought to be and what we actually are. It exposes to us how far we are from the shore. So moral maps don't really help us either. So you look to your third friend, right? You're like, please, give me something more. And this third friend, as soon as they broke the surface, screamed out, I'm rich! You're like, what? what? How are you rich? What do you mean? They're like, well, I was getting ready for our next excursion on the cruise. And when I did that, I packed my pockets full of all sorts of cash. So, yeah, we're in an ocean of death, but I'm loaded. That's a silly response. And yet many of us in our American culture think that this is the best way to deal with pain and death and suffering. We pursue money and career. We try to climb the ladder. We fill our lives with comfort and family, thinking that that's the best way to deal with our world. But guys, in an ocean of death, money is just soggy paper. It is useless to us. It doesn't resolve our problem. Worldly achievement can't help. So here you are, 
floating in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with three friends who have, well, brutal responses to the situation. And you're realizing this crisis that we're in is way too big for them to resolve. It's way too big for any of us to resolve. Their responses are insufficient. We need something that can outdistance our crisis. And today, in our next installment in this series on the Apostles' Creed, we're going to look at a statement about Jesus right in the middle of our creed. That he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he died, and that he was buried. And it's in that statement, and in the text that we read in Mark 15, that we see that the work of Jesus has the power to outdistance our crisis has the actual ability to get us back onto the boat, to get us to dry land in the middle of an ocean of death. And there's three ways that this gets revealed to us in the text and in the creed today. And the first thing that it gets revealed to us is is that Jesus is a brother who jumps in after us. The second way is that he's a savior that lifts us out of the water. And the third way is that he's a guide that takes us back to our friends so that we can help bring them out of the water. So first, we see that Jesus is a brother who jumps into the water. It's always been curious to me how all four gospel writers mention Pontius Pilate in their accounts, and in the creed, we recite Pontius Pilate. Why does he get a shout-out, right? I get why Jesus gets a shout-out. I get why Mary gets a shout-out. They're like good people. Pontius Pilate is the one who condemned him to death. Why are we saying his name thousands of years later? Well, it's because in the ancient world, When you wanted to locate something in history, you would talk about a leader that existed at that time. You wouldn't write down a date like we do today. Leaders were the way to locate actual historical happenings. We talk about Pontius Pilate in the Creed and talk about Pontius Pilate in the Gospel narratives because we know that Jesus was a historical person who really lived, who really breathed, who really ate, and who really died. That's a crucial thing for us to remember. Christianity is not nice spiritual advice. It's not a fun metaphorical story about death and resurrection. It's a real man named Yeshua, a real Palestinian rabbi who really lived and died. That's why when we hear in the creed, suffered, crucified, dead, buried, it's like nails into a cross for us. It's reminding us that this all really happened. The gospel writers spend more than 30% of their time in the gospel accounts talking about the last week of Jesus. That is, talking about his clear pathway towards death. They want us to be really clear that Jesus died. That he was betrayed by his best friend. That he was dragged to a fake trial in the middle of the night and he was proven innocent but condemned guilty. That he was then dragged into the street and beaten by the cops. That they mocked him by putting a a crown on his head that streamed blood down his face. That he couldn't carry his cross to Golgotha and so they needed someone else to help him. And that when he got there, they nailed him to that cross and he was naked. That's an important thing. We often depict Jesus as having worn something on the cross, but that's actually not how crucifixion worked. Crucifixion was designed by the Roman Empire to shame anyone who was crucified. The whole point was to say, we as Romans are in control and anyone who opposes us, this is what's going to happen. The most shameful potential punishment so that anyone looking at it would never oppose the Roman Empire. And then, when he's up there, he continues to experience pain. He's not a nice, sage, religious leader. He's in the middle of the human condition, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies. And then he gets placed in a real tomb. You guys, if you're starting a religion, making it up, this is a terrible starting point. 
Just a bad marketing move. This is the religious leader of your movement, and he is dying a miserable criminal's death full of shame and pain. We see nothing else like this in the history of religion. Buddha and Muhammad, they give calm and sage advice on their dying days. Jesus is murdered. And here's why it's important for us to remember the historical reality of Jesus' suffering, friends. God is not an unrelatable, stoic, distant God. God steps directly into our pain. We have a brother in the midst of it. And that's important because it reminds us that God loves us. See, love never stands calmly and coolly at a distance and prevents itself from stepping into the pain of the beloved. Love will always go through the pain with the beloved. That's why when we uh, give vows of marriage to one, or one another, we say things like in sickness and in health, in, uh, when we're rich and when we're poor, right? If you married someone and they just said, no, I'm just in it for the rich parts, it's not a really good expression of love. Right? You would say it's a failure of love. This is a God who steps in because he loves us. There's a theologian uh, from Germany named Helmut Tielicke who writes about this. He says, here is someone who wants to be one of us, a comrade of the outcasts, a brother of the blind, a companion of the lowly and the suffering and the dying. He appears among them without privileges, sharing their fate, the savior of the world, incognito. Friends, there is nothing you can experience in this life that Jesus is not fully acquainted with. There's no depression, there's no anxiety, there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no sin that you can be tempted to that Jesus did not feel the weight of in his life. We have a Lord who's a brother. But he's not just a brother to us. We have plenty of brothers who can walk through pain with us, but many of our brothers can't help us out of that pain. They can't fix it for us, but we learn that Jesus on the cross can He's not just a brother who jumps into the water after us. He's a savior who lifts us out of the water. Let's reverse back to when you and your friends are treading water in the Atlantic Ocean here. Soon, after a few minutes, your leg starts to cramp, naturally. And then some of the waves start to rock back and forth, and they uh, slosh some salt water into your system. You're having trouble staying above water, and immediately your response is, man, i got to fix this leg cramp, right? i got to keep my head above water so I don't continue to swallow the salt water. See, many times in our lives, we respond to pain and suffering by dealing with the symptoms rather than the root. By dealing with the cramps and the salt water rather than dealing with the fact that we're not on the boat, right? Because the cramps and the salt water, those can get taken care of when we're safe. But those are actually just symptoms. And if we try to resolve those symptoms, they're not going to get us out of the water. We do this all the time in our lives. We think that if we just get the next thing, if we just get the next promotion, if we just get uh, this marriage fixed, if we just figure out the right neighborhood to live in, if we just get the right comfort level, then, then my life will be resolved. It's this never-ending loop where we keep punting the ball down the field and never quite being satisfied because we're dealing with symptoms and not the cause. The cause of our pain in our world isn't just simply the leg cramps. The cause of the pain in our world is that we were made for a different sort of world. When God created us, he designed us for intimate relationship with him, 
loving relationship with one another, and care for the world around us. That was the original harmony in the created order. And we all, in our own ways, have looked at that created order and said, you know what? I think I can actually do better on my own. I think I can really navigate this life better. I can define good for myself. I can define happiness for myself. And so we have continued to define it on our own. We've neglected the harmony that God gave us. And the result is what Christians call sin. And sin is sometimes a fancy weaponized religious word. It simply just means missing the mark. That's what the Greek word hamartia for sin means. We've missed the mark of what it means to be truly human. And because of that, we experience, well, unhumanity. We experience brokenness and pain. And all of those things in our lives, all the leg cramps and the salt water, those are symptoms of sin. Symptoms of a broken world. It's a sickness that we can never escape. And sometimes in our lives, we have a tendency to say that that sickness is someone else's fault. This is the classic human response. This is from the beginning. We've blamed other people for our situations. Blamed other people for the brokenness in our world. We look around and say, oh yeah, man, those liberals, they're the problem. Or those conservatives, right? We just need to get those people out of office and then, then things will be all right. It's the poor people. They're the ones. They're mooching off of us. Or it's the wealthy people. They're taking advantage of us. Let's just get rid of the swindlers or the liars or the used car salesmen and then, then we'll be good. Then our world will fix itself. Here's the irony in that claim, friends, when we blame one another. If everyone's blaming each other, that means we're all to blame. None of us are actually free of blame. If we're all projecting it onto one another, what we realize is that we all participate. When you leaned on the railing on that cruise ship, you leaned with people. You participated in the same thing. We all have participated. There's a a Russian author named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who talks about this. Uh, He lived in Soviet Russia uh, during the time of the Gulag. He said this, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy his own heart? Here's the reality, friends. There is not one of us that is free from responsibility for the brokenness in our world. There's not one of us that is righteous and good on our own. There's not one of us that is free from sin. We're all treading water in an ocean of death, and we all need someone to lift us out. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the thing that can. It gets stated uh, somewhat ironically by Mark in verse 31. You may have caught it. People mocking Jesus say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. They're saying that like it's a bad thing. They're they're mocking Jesus, but what they're really doing is proclaiming the gospel. See, Jesus on the cross takes all of the death and all of the pain and all the suffering that we experience onto himself so that we wouldn't have to. He says, I will take your anxiety. I will take your suffering. I will take your pain. I'll take your sin and I'll bury it. I'll leave it in the grave so that nothing can stand between you and true life. Nothing can stand between you and the unity with God you were made for, the love with others you were made for, the creation that you were made for. The cross of Jesus Christ takes on all of it and leaves it dead. It's God's eternal yes to us. You are forgiven. So come to me. Return to me. Call out for me in the middle of the ocean. I will lift you out. I have the power to do it. So we don't just have a brother who jumps in with us. We have a savior who lifts us out of the water. 
But there's a third part to the cross as well that we learn. We don't just have a brother and a savior. We also have a guide. Over in verse 39 in Mark 15, after Jesus has breathed his last, we learn of a Roman centurion who's been seeing this whole thing play out. And he asserts at the end of it all that this was God's son. That's what he says in the text, which is shocking to the original audience. See, Roman centurions were hardened people, violent and oppressive. There was no better picture of oppression than a Roman centurion at this time. And this hardened person, this hard-hearted person, has their heart melted, warmed by the love and grace of Jesus because that's what the cross does. The cross brings in even the most hard-hearted people, even the most sinister people, even the most difficult people because it's the truest definition of love and forgiveness that we could ever have. It's what it means to be really human. This centurion looks at Jesus and says, there is something transcendent about that. You guys, once Jesus has lifted us from the water, the cross doesn't just end there. Jesus doesn't get us back to the boat and say, cool, wait around and you're good to go. When when we get back to the boat together, he drives us off and he's like, all right, you ready to go help your friends? You ready to jump back in and help lift them out with me? That's what the cross does. We are supposed to adopt the same posture to our world as Jesus adopted when he was alive. We are to die to ourselves. We are to bear our cross. And we are to be a community of people who do that well. When the church lives cross-shaped lives, it can transform our world. It can take the most hard-hearted people and bring them in. And love them and welcome them and change them from the inside out. The church I pastor at Midtown, we reach a lot of folks who haven't experienced a cross-shaped church, who haven't experienced a church that looks like Jesus. They've experienced a church instead that plays a lot of power games, talks a lot about partisan politics, a church that condemns rather than gives grace or love, a church that says, well, we have all the answers. We have it figured out. A church that puts on a nice production that makes themselves look impressive, but don't actually engage their brokenness and their need for Jesus. And many of my friends who have experienced these things say, you know what? If that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, I want no part of it. Because that's just a mirror to the world. You put some nice religious plating on it, but that just looks exactly like the rest of my neighbors. Divisive, selfish, prideful, greedy. I know so many people, friends, who have that experience of the church, which is why it's crucially important for us to embody the cross now to follow Jesus' example in what he does. When that happens, I've watched it occur at Midtown over years. People who were keeping the church at a distance, who said, I want no part of that Jesus thing. They saw a, a community that loved them. They saw people who served the poor and the needy in their midst, and they said, there's something different about this. There's something different about these people. They give themselves away. They care about me. They care about my questions and my doubts. They care about my pains and my suffering. And when we care about people in that way, it will warm their hearts, just like it does the centurions. You guys, we have plenty of methods in our world to respond with death and suffering and pain. Just turn on cable news. Just flip on social media. You will see all sorts of solutions that people have to this problem. Blame these people, condemn these people, just comfort your way out of it. None of those responses work. 
None of those responses can get us out of the ocean except the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the thing that can redeem and restore our broken, dying lives. This is a brother who jumps in the water. This is a savior who lifts us out of the water. And this is a guide who takes us back to our friends so that they can have life too. And so the question for us is pretty simple. Will we believe that? When we say the Apostles' Creed, we start with the words, I believe in. When we say those words, they're not just intellectual assertions. When we say, I believe, we're saying that this reality is going to shape everything we do. So will the cross shape everything we do? Will we leave here saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, who died, and was buried? Will we, friends? Let's pray. Father, we come before you as people well aware, well acquainted with all of the methods of our world to resolve this ocean of death. And we come to you as people who have pursued those methods in our own ways. We're thankful that you give us a response that can actually help. You give us a response that goes into the pain and suffering with us, that lifts us out of the pain and suffering and sin, and then that draws us to others so that we might help you do the same for them. I pray that your spirit would move in this community at Mountain View, in the community at South Scottsdale, in the community at Midtown, so that we might continue to embody your way to the world, so that others might be freed from this ocean of death. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.